Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. (laughs) It feels a little strange for me to be offering a Dharma talk on Easter Sunday because my experience of speaking on Easter has always been sermons in churches, mainly 50 years ago when I was pastor of the American Protestant Church in Antwerp, Belgium. But actually, when I think about it, it really isn't that strange at all. Because if there's one thing that I've come to treasure in my years here at the Wan Temple, it's the realization that in the words of Chong San, the second grand master of Wan Buddhism, the central truths taught in Christianity and in Buddhism and probably most of the world religions, in his words, all derive fundamentally from a single source. The paths may be different, but the destination is the same. Today, Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. He who died, who was crucified, and who Christians believe was resurrected. What better time for this transformation to be celebrated than in the spring when all of nature comes alive with new color and growth, right? At least yesterday we had it. In the Easter story, we see illustrated a universal mythic theme that I've referred to many times here called the De Profundis motif. This motif says that out of the depths of darkness comes life, out of despair comes hope, out of failure comes opportunity. There's an urban myth that in Chinese graphology, the symbol for crisis is composed of a combination of the symbols for danger and opportunity. Turns out that this isn't actually true. Not literally. (laughs) But I think psychologically it is true. The De Profundis motif suggests that without danger, there might not be opportunity. Light has no meaning without dark. Life has no meaning without death, and so forth. And this theme permeates mythology, literature, theater, I think life itself. It reflects a very basic truth. This morning, I want to talk about one aspect of this truth as it applies to human character and behavior, the importance of perseverance in the face of diversity. So the topic of my talk is, it's never too late. I remember a few years ago seeing a bumper sticker on a car that caught my eye. It said, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. (laughs) Now, at first glance, that seems rather absurd, doesn't it? If, If your childhood was miserable and unhappy, you can't undo that. You can't relive it. But I think that's looking at things too literally. If we look at this statement symbolically, I think it's saying something that our Buddhist practice teaches us, and that is that our history does not determine our future. Even Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, who taught that human character is largely formed by age five or six, did not feel that history is destiny. His life work was devoted to working with patients to help them move beyond the pain of early trauma and abuse. He believed in the resilience of the human psyche and the importance of perseverance in moving forward, not being forever stuck in the past. Negative and painful experiences obviously do affect us, and sometimes profoundly, and they take their toll. And to feel the hurt and grief from such experiences is normal and I think even necessary. But those experiences do not define us. And the challenge that I think we all face many times in our lives is to keep those bad experiences from shaping our expectations of what lies ahead. 
in the future. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. A simple statement, but I think it's also profound. And I have always found this to be one of the most helpful and hopeful Buddhist teachings. That whatever has happened to me or to the society in which I live in the past does not have to determine what's going to happen henceforth. It does not have to be repeated in the future. I think we most of us believe this, but I think it's not easy to put it into practice. The danger is that when things do not go well, for example, the current political situation in this country, we can easily fall into pessimism or cynicism. I think that's happened to a lot of people in the last year. So the question I really want to address this morning is how can we avoid that? When things are really bad, how can we keep from falling into despair and cynicism? When I look at Buddhist teachings and at the insights of modern psychology in addressing this issue, I find that both place great emphasis on the importance of cultivating perseverance. A Zen proverb says, fall seven times, stand up eight. The Buddha said there are only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth, not starting and not going all the way. And the Wan Master Sote San said, those who have made a great vow to the great way should not hope to accomplish it quickly. With quick steps, one cannot walk a long distance. With an impatient mind, one cannot achieve the great way. That tall tree is the result of a small shoot growing for many years without decaying. Buddhas and bodhisattvas are the result of accumulating merits over a long period of time without going back on their original vow. In short, these teachings say, I think, that we need to have perseverance if we are to succeed in overcoming adversity. But how do we cultivate perseverance? I think there are a few answers to that. First and foremost, I think, is maintaining, as we try to do and do, our spiritual practice. Daily meditation and mindfulness clearly help us to become more centered, more patient, I think it's out of patience that comes the ability to persevere. But also, our attitude and our will play a big part in this. To persevere in the face of challenges and adversity, we have to believe that, that, that with that perseverance, we will prevail. A term that's used a lot in psychology today, I'm sure you're all aware of it and have used it, is self-fulfilling prophecy. And this means simply that our expectations affect the outcome of our experiences. Psychological research shows clearly that when you expect a negative outcome or failure, that's much more likely to happen than when you expect a positive outcome. In medicine, the placebo effect is a perfect example of this. In many tests, when patients are given a sugar pill to treat an illness and are told they've been given a pharmaceutical agent, their health improves almost as much as those patients who were given the actual medicine. The expectation of being healed plays a huge role in bringing about the healing, the desired result. This applies not only to medicine, but to almost every aspect of our lives. A psychologist, and I can't remember his name, in the 1960s, studying the relative effectiveness of different modes of psychotherapy, discovered that the single greatest indicator of whether a patient in the end was helped and got better in therapy 
was whether that patient expected to be helped when they started therapy. He suggested that in the final analysis, that expectation was more important than the competence of the therapist. It's fascinating, isn't it? Tells us a lot about the power of the brain and the thought processes that generate from our brains. For example, some of the greatest athletes attribute their success to practicing positive visualization before a game or a match. Michael Jordan, who was arguably the best basketball player of all time, spent much time before each game visualizing his shots, seeing them go through the basket in his mind's eye. He felt that this visualizing contributed largely to his success. Current brain studies, which are at the cutting edge of modern neuropsychology, indicate that the neural pathways in our brains are affected profoundly by our conscious thoughts. This is something we've only really become aware of in the last 20 years or so. If your brain is stuck in a cycle of negative thinking, such as, I'm no good, I'll never be any good, I'm going to fail, nothing good is going to happen, that this, nothing good is going to come out of this, brain scans have shown that if you replace those negative thoughts with positive ones, no, I will not fail, I can do this thing, things can change, even when you don't believe the positive thought, but just go through the motions, simply thinking it has the effect of changing the neural pathway in your brain. Think of these patterns of negative thought being like a bicycle that is going around in a muddy circle, digging deeper and deeper ruts as it goes. When you change the thought patterns, it's like the bicycle escaping the rut and going off in another direction, which creates the possibility of finding a healthier, more positive path. The thing that I find most fascinating and encouraging by this is that you don't even have to believe in the more positive thought to change the neural pathways in the brain and to override the negative rut that you've been stuck in. So there is some truth to the saying, fake it and you'll make it. Of course, that doesn't solve the problem, but it creates a new opportunity to think and act differently. This is the first moment of the rest of my life. So I'm suggesting that negative thinking and negative expectations are probably a major, maybe the greatest hindrance to cultivating the patience and perseverance that will lead to positive change. Thoughts like, this won't work because it hasn't worked in the past, or it's too late, why bother, it's not worth it, can be the biggest barriers to positive change. I'm not suggesting that there aren't times when realistically it is, it is probably too late to change a bad or unfortunate situation. I think it's important to be realistic, too. But I think we often too easily equate realism with pessimism. The least desirable result may seem to be the most realistic, when in fact, in many instances, it isn't. As a therapist, I've seen this a lot in my work with the clients that I've worked with for more than 40 years. I've done a lot of marriage counseling, and many couples have come in saying, it's too late. This marriage can't be saved. There's too much irreparable damage. Too much water has gone under the bridge. And sometimes that is true. And then my job becomes that of trying to help them find a way to separate peacefully with minimal malice or harm. But there have been a number of times when with couples that I've related or treated, relatively small but important changes in communication patterns or simply developing more empathy for each other's feelings has turned things around and they found a way to essentially start over. 
Needless to say, that never occurs quickly or easily and requires perseverance. I found that interestingly, a lot of the communication problems that occur between couples as well as other family members or friends may be due largely to personality differences that have not been acknowledged or understood. How often have you heard someone say, I really wanted to say such and such to him or her, but I couldn't find the words then and now it's too late. It happens a lot. If you've ever taken the Myers-Briggs test, which I'm guessing many of you have, you're aware that using a Jungian typology, it indicates whether one is more introverted or extroverted, a thinking type or a feeling type, an intuitive type or a sensation type. I personally score as an INF, an introverted intuitive feeling type. But when I recently retook the test, I came out more as an extrovert. So you can change. <laughs> you can change. When two people are different types using that kind of typology, which is often the case, especially in couples, and that may be the result of both nature and nurture, their brains will be programmed to respond differently. For example, a sensation type, and especially a feeling sensation type, will usually have an immediate emotional response to what is said to them. It's like they wear their feelings on their sleeve. While an intuitive type, and especially a thinking intuitive type, will often need some time to process what has been said to them, and even to be aware of what they're really feeling. So many misunderstandings between couples, friends, or family members, I think, stem from the fact that the two people are processing things differently, and they don't realize it. The intuitive type needs to realize that if he or she didn't respond immediately, it was due to needing more time to process things. So they needn't feel that it's too late to respond later after having thought things through. This idea, well, if I didn't say it right then, it's too late now. No, it's not too late. Say it later. Say it tomorrow. But it still matters. And in those situations, the sensation type needs to understand that their intuitive partner is not being just difficult or provocative, but they really haven't been able to access their feelings. They don't really know quite yet what they are feeling. In my experience, understanding this kind of typological difference can often help communication, especially in couples, and it can help avert unnecessary fights or confrontations. But you know, misunderstandings are not always the result of typological differences. Often when we're dealing with prolonged struggles in family dynamics, especially with grown children or with aging parents, these two situations seem to be the ones where it comes up the most, we may find ourselves thinking, it's too late, he or she's never going to change. And here I can give you a personal example from my own life of how things sometimes do change. My mother was a very lovely person. But when I was growing up, she was a very insecure person, and she seemed to always need to be at the center of attention. From the time I was a teenager until midlife, I felt, to be honest, very ambivalent toward her. Every conversation always seemed to end up being about her. And had she died before age 70, I would have had a lot of unfinished business in dealing with my feelings about her. But in her 70th year, a strange thing happened. She had a terrible accident. She fell from a cliff by the ocean in Northern California, 30 feet onto the rocks below. Miraculously, she survived with just a broken hip and recovered completely. But then something happened. She changed dramatically. She became more accessible, more empathic. 
she stopped repeating stories that I'd heard far too often where with a laugh she'd talk about what a brat I had been as a kid. And those stories which I had heard for decades and hated suddenly stopped. My mother became much more tuned into what I was feeling and we became close, maybe for the first time. And when she died 18 years later, I felt nothing but love for her, no ambivalence. And I'm really grateful for that. Now granted, not everyone with a difficult parent has the good fortune, he quotes, of that, patient, of that parent falling off a cliff and becoming <laughs> a new person. <laughs> but I think we have to be really careful when we think he or she is never going to change. Daniel Siegel, the neuropsychologist who's done wonderful research in the neuroplasticity of the brain throughout the lifespan, in his book Mindsight, he describes a patient of his who was in his 80s. This man was very narcissistic and arrogant. His wife of 50 years and his children, while clearly loving him, felt he was the most difficult person they've ever had to deal with. It was as though empathy was not part of his DNA. He came to see Dr. Siegel only because his wife and children told him he had to or they wouldn't have anything more to do with him. They were fed up. In working with this man, Dr. Siegel said it was apparent that this man's behavior was controlled far too much by the rational left side of his brain. So he set out to work on helping him to experience and develop the right side of his brain, the side that controls emotions, creativity, and empathy. After six months of work with Dr. Siegel, this man's behavior began to change, first gradually and then more steadily and dramatically. And his wife reported to Dr. Siegel that for the first time in more than 50 years, she felt she had a compassionate, empathic husband. And the children concurred with this. Remarkable. Sometimes it's not too late for people to change, however late, whatever their age. Another issue around which we may sometimes find ourselves thinking it's too late is in evaluating our lives and what we have or have not achieved. And again, I see this a lot in my therapy practice. One of the most frequent examples of this is clients in their 30s or 40s, especially females, but not only females, in this male-dominated city who want to find a life partner but have not succeeded so far. And so they say to me in therapy, it's too late. My friends are all getting married and having kids. It's just not going to happen to me. Sometimes it doesn't. And one learns with perseverance to shape a meaningful and satisfying existence as a single person. But there have been so many times when the person who felt it was too late found that they were giving off the wrong signals or failing to recognize red flags in unsuitable partners. And with time and perseverance, did find a suitable and good partner. And I would add that those who were most successful at this probably were those who persevered the most. When there are those people who struggle with finding a meaningful vocation, uh, there are those who, who struggle with finding a meaningful vocation by age 40 or 50, and they feel like it's too late for that to happen. And here's another area where I think perseverance is so important. Today, more than ever, you see people going into second or third careers in midlife. Just a few years ago at Union Seminary, where I got my training here in the city, the average age of entering students was over 40. People who had been practicing law, medicine, and finance were seeking the ministry as a new career. And you can make a long list of people who have found their vocation late in life. Ray Kroc started McDonald's when he was 50. 
Colonel Sanders started Kentucky Fried Chicken when he was 65. Julia Childs published her first cookbook and made her first TV show at age 50. Grandma Moses was 80 when she decided to take up painting. One of the coaches at Pomona College, where I went to school in California, took up tennis at age 65, and in his 70s, he led the country in his age range in tennis. And not to boast, but to just share a significant part of my own experience, I've always played the piano by ear from the time I was probably six or seven years old, but never knew an augmented chord from a diminished. With strong urging from my therapist, I took my first formal piano lesson at age 50. And four years later, my group, Riverside Drive, performed at Birdland. And I told my wife that night, you can shoot me now and I can die. <laughs> it's never too late. Finally, I want to talk about our expectations about what's going on in the world. Let's face it, the last 15 months under the Trump administration have perhaps been the most difficult political time that most of us have lived through. It certainly has been for me. With President Trump doing everything he can to prevent improving the environment, health care, social services, immigration, and foreign policy, it's been very difficult not to be pessimistic about where our country is headed, about what kind of legacy we can hope to leave our children and grandchildren. With the damage that has been done, it may feel at times like it's too late to turn things around. But again, I don't think so. During this difficult past year, we've seen some amazing pushback and movement and change. With the Women's March in January of last year, we saw the beginning of a wonderful movement that I think is really only just getting going. In October, when Ashley Judd put herself on the line and accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual abuse, she unleashed the incredible hashtag MeToo movement. And I think this movement has begun a permanent change in how men will treat women in our society, and particularly how men in positions of power treat women who work for them. This is just beginning, but it's gaining momentum. But perhaps the most encouraging of all to me is what we saw demonstrated last Saturday in the March for Our Lives. As my wife and I sat watching these wonderful young people addressing 800,000 people on the Washington Mall and tens of millions on TV and the internet, we were moved to tears. These kids were so poised, they thought things out so well, that 11-year-old African-American girl who said, people are going to accuse me of having been influenced by some nameless adult. No, these are my words. And in six years, or seven years from now, I'm going to be voting. Or the young woman who threw up twice because she was so nervous and then finally pulled herself together and said, I just threw up on international TV and I feel great. <laughs> and then she went on to finish her presentation. These people, these kids expressed a commitment to persevere in turning things around in, their, in this country. They are the future. And that future looks hopeful. Between now and 2020, 16 million children in this country will turn 18, voting age. And by 2024, 30 million more will turn 18. And I have great faith that these young people will be the harbingers of positive political change. I trust that they will show great perseverance in pursuing an agenda for a more sane, civil, and compassionate society. It's not too late. Now, I know that I'm a glass-half-full kind of person. My wife says I'm a Dewey idealist, and that's probably true. 
But you know, I'm grateful for that because it keeps hope alive in me. And I'm aware that many people are gla more glass half empty types. One, one of my sons is that way. I think that's more a question perhaps of genetics and neurological wiring than training or experience. But whatever your type and however you may be inclined toward pessimism or optimism, one thing that neurological research is teaching us clearly is that we can all benefit from consciously opposing negative thoughts and expectations. And by doing all that we can to cultivate perseverance and not giving up when things go wrong. I'm very much aware that patience and perseverance won't always bring the desired result to every difficult situation. I hope I'm enough of a, realize, of a realist to realize that sometimes in spite of our best intentions and efforts, things go bad. But here's where I think our spiritual practice can help and does help. Past losses and failures, as painful as they sometimes are, and they are, do not have to dictate our future. Buddhism teaches us that, if we always, that we always have the option, if we persevere, of starting over, of finding new directions, creating new paths. Meditation and mindfulness have the effect of calming our souls, of making us more patient, giving us the strength and courage to persevere, regardless of what has happened before. So it really is my faith that whatever life deals us, it's never too late to find new directions, new hope, new life. And for me, that is what Easter is all about. Thank you for letting me share these thoughts with you this morning.